human societies in detail, of course, vary in all sorts of ways. You know, it's sort of like if you wanted to study the details in the configuration of organelles in a cell from moment to moment, it'd be much more productive to generalize about patterns in what the organelles do as single-celled organisms evolve or something like that than it would be to try and understand specific details of what happens inside a cell from moment to moment. You know, and I think that's true for societies too. I think the regularities that are there at the level of human social behavior show up when you apprehend them at a, at a big scale. has a way of distancing itself from everything that came before it. And yet the evidence from archaeology supports a different story. While industrial societies tend to praise markets and advanced technologies as the main drivers of the last few centuries of change, a careful study of civilizations as distinct as ancient Rome, Peru, and central Mexico reveals an underlying uniformity. Consistent patterns have played out in human settlements across millennia and continents, regardless of the economic systems we've employed or the inventions on which we have relied. These patterns, furthermore, look just like those that govern and delimit evolutionary change. The scaling laws determining the growth of cities are, apparently, the same that led to cities in the first place, or to human social groups, or complex animals. Human settlements act as social reactors by facilitating interactions. In other words, the functional relationships within communities drive history, and this century has more in common with the distant past than commonly believed. These revelations, though, might have remained invisible to us if archaeology itself had not transformed over the last few decades, evolving new approaches to cross-disciplinary synthesis. It's time to update both our notions of the ancient world and our popular conception of the archaeologist. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we talked to former SFI Amidyar fellow Scott Ortman, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Colorado Boulder, about his work on settlement scaling theory and fostering synthesis in archaeology to advance science and benefit society. If you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcastgive and or rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. All right. Well, Scott Ortman, it is a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I like to start these because, you know, a big part of the show, at least for me, is humanizing the researchers, humanizing the process of science. So I like to start these with a little bit of a biographical background and just ask you how you got into the work that you're doing. You know, what drew you into archaeology in the first place? And then from there, 
what most likely nonlinear path took you into the orbit of the Santa Fe Institute? Mm -hmm. Sure. Why did I become an archaeologist? Honestly, I think it was because when I was a freshman in college, the first archaeology course I took as an undergraduate had a lot of inquiry to it. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I was younger, I was very good at math and and I liked biology and things like that. And and I always assumed that, you know, I would go into one of those fields when I grew up. And the first few years of college, you know, I took a year of chemistry, a year of physics, a year of biology. And it was like class after class was, here's everything that we know, learn it. And it just didn't, all I could say is that the way it was taught for me, I mean, I could do it, but it wasn't super exciting because, uh, you know, I know, that, of course, in all of those fields, inquiry is crucial once you get into it and once you get to the point that you can do do that sort of thing. But the way it was presented made it feel like you're never going to get there because there's just a bunch of rote learning to do and you get tested on your ability to memorize things as opposed to your ability to actually be a researcher. In contrast, my first archaeology course, I guess it was my sophomore year in college, you know, very first assignment was getting data from excavations and being asked to in- examine it, analyze it, make sense of it, figure it out. And uh, that was just way more fun, frankly. And I think if my first physics course had been fun like that, I'd probably be a physicist now. Or if my first biology course had been like that, I'd be a biologist now, you know. But for whatever reason, I just got started down this path because of the way it was presented to me when I was 19 years old, probably. How did I get to SFI? Well, I was a, uh, a mid-year postdoctoral fellow at SFI, uh, was very fortunate enough to be offered one of those, uh, a position at the Institute after I uh, completed my PhD back in 2010. And I would say that I, when I applied to, to the, for the fellowship, I I wouldn't say I knew that much about complexity science per se. My training certainly was not in that. Uh, it was, it was, you know, I went, got a master's degree and PhD in archaeology and learned the ideas and methods of that discipline. I've always been interested in interdisciplinary work. Back when I was a graduate student, I read a lot of cognitive science and uh, cognitive linguistics. Uh, I was interested in human biology and human evolution. Uh, population biology, uh, you know, and I applied a lot of those kinds of ideas and methods uh, in my dissertation work. So I was very comfortable with and excited about the idea of interdisciplinary research or research on questions uh, kind of at the margins between disciplines or questions where as much as practitioners of any given discipline might wish it were different, uh, you can't answer them, you know, (laughs) with a disciplinary approach. So I knew that SFI was like the place to go to do kind of interdisciplinary work uh, or, or work between disciplines. And that was really the reason I applied and why I was super excited and honored to be offered a, a fellowship there. So the the work that I do related to uh, complexity science in human societies is interests uh, and knowledge that developed, you know, once I joined the SFI community. Uh, it's definitely not a part of my uh, previous life. Yeah. So as someone who fell out of the the ambit of, of paleontology after my undergrad and then over the subsequent 15 years has seen a complete sea change in the methodological toolkit being used in that discipline, it seems like something very similar has gone on in archaeology. And that brings us to the, the first piece that 
I want to discuss with you, which touches on the issues you just described here. It was a piece, that, an opinion piece that you wrote for PNAS, along with a, a host of co-authors, including uh, you know, Jerry Sabloff and, and Tim Kohler of SFI uh, and numerous others on fostering synthesis and archaeology to advance science and benefit society. And I feel like this is a really important subject uh, to clarify for people just how different some, at least, of the archaeology that you practice is from the public opinion, the public image that has developed as a consequence of films like Indiana Jones, you know, and just this notion that archaeology is sort of a sophisticated stamp collection or that it's about like grave robbing or this kind of thing. And that actually, you know, that you're you're working in, in a you know, very intricate ways with people in a number of different fields, and you're you're applying a suite of techniques and methods that are not merely acquisitive and uh, are really getting at something that is uh, more fundamental about the dynamics of human society and the way that the, those dynamics are embedded in the sort of the broader fundamental understanding about the physical nature of the world. And so, yeah, so I would love to hear you talk a little bit about this opinion piece and the organizations that you're a part of that you mentioned in this piece and, and why you and your colleagues felt that these organizations needed to, to happen, what kind of service they're functioning in society. Yeah, uh, that opinion piece uh, is emanated from a workshop that uh, a large group of us attended and an organization that developed from that called the Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis. And the basic idea of, of that is that the ability of archaeologists to document the physical remains of past behavior, you know, through archaeology has been expanding exponentially uh, in the last few decades. Um, uh, you know, just to give you an example, a few years ago, the U.S. Geological Survey did a LIDAR survey of all of northern New Mexico, where, where my fieldwork is. And as a result, there's freely available LIDAR data that you can download for my entire research area. And uh, you can basically make absolutely accurate maps of, of archaeological sites, things that used to take a field season and weeks to do, you can do in a day using your computer. Uh, it's really astonishing the ability, the, the tools that we have to make those observations. So archaeology is getting so much better and so much faster and so much more efficient in collecting uh, observations about the archaeological record. And we're getting a lot better at translating those observations into proxies for things that are interesting, you know, about past behavior, things that uh, are interesting to learn about. At the same time, I think the, the traditional idea of the field is that its goal is to tell the story of the past. You know, in other words, it's, its purpose is, to, is, lar is largely humanistic in the sense of developing the story of societies of the past, the rise and fall of civilizations, the, the historical development of different societies around the world. And don't get me wrong, the public wants that from archaeologists, and archaeologists like doing it, and they're good at it, and they're creative, and many of the stories that archaeologists develop are very exciting and interesting to think about. They feed our imaginations in important ways. They help us to imagine 
alternative worlds and alternative ways of living that I think all of us could use in these days to help us creatively imagine ways of solving the problems that we face. But many of us involved with the coalition feel that the field of archaeology is not leveraging our ability to systematically observe the archaeological record well enough. And we're not, we're not giving back to society as much as I think we could. And so, you know, the, the, the focus of this organization is to promote a way of thinking about the archaeological record that is very much in keeping with the way, you know, in a sense, um, a, a transformation that happened in biology as uh, the theory of evolution came to pass uh, in the 19th century. So, you know, prior to Darwin, uh, natural history involved documenting the diversity of life, the diversity, you know, the, the fossil record, cataloging the geographical patterns of biological diversity and so forth. And prior to Darwin, there wasn't a very clear sense that the processes that govern what happens in a living population right now might be the same as the processes that govern the evolution of species at the scale of the paleontological record, for example, or the, ge the geological record. So a, a commitment to uniformitarianism, you know, a commitment to the idea that there are certain fundamental processes that have been operating in the evolution of life all along was a crucial step in developing an approach to biology that has been so incredibly productive and useful for humanity. You know, the ability to know how evolution works is crucial right now, right, for figuring out how to solve this uh, pandemic that we're suffering through. Without the theory of evolution, it's a heck of a lot harder to solve many of the problems, these kinds of problems. So the Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis is trying to promote that way of thinking about the archaeological record, too, and about human societies. The idea that there is a core set of uniformitarian social processes that operate in any society. And what that means is if you can identify what they are and learn how to study them, you can learn about the way those processes work today by studying the way they've worked in the past. And that the things you would learn from studying the archaeological record then become directly applicable to the way societies work today. That's the goal. It's, of course, a huge culture change for archaeology. And it's going to take a while to convince other social scientists, you know, about this uh, way of thinking. But I think, you know, it's going to take archaeologists coming up with convincing examples of how this can be done. Anyway, that's what we're working on, and that's what I'm uh, excited to be contributing to. Excellent. Yeah, I want to I want to loop back into the the uniformitarian picture here. But before we do, and I know that this might be kind of dry for some people, but you know, I think it's also important to understand the way that the practice, the organization, the structure of science is changing these days in order to reflect the increasingly networked nature of society itself. And you mentioned it in this. Uh, in this piece, that in collaboration with scientists and other disciplines, archaeologists need to conduct synthetic research that enjoys institutional and infrastructural support beyond what could be accomplished or is accomplished through grant-funded initiatives at individual universities or research institutes. But how? And then you point to a case study from the field of ecology grappling with similar problems coming to their own innovative solutions in the 90s. So what does that look like in terms of what it means to reach beyond these sort of more conventional modes of funding and organizing science in order to actually accomplish this research. So the 
traditional scope of a grant, let's say from the National Science Foundation to do an archaeological project would be, you know, a couple of years uh, for a couple of collaborators to spend several months in the field, either doing excavations or survey to do some analysis of the samples that are recovered, you know, for, let's say, dating or chemistry or things like that. Um, and, you know, a lot, the traditional way of collecting archaeological data is at the trowel's edge. You know, you've got a, you've got a digging imp implement and you're in the ground and that's where the observations are coming from is the removal of the earth or, you know, more recently, maybe, you know, making a map of archaeological remains somewhere, you know, so that process works. But of course, it takes a very long time to accumulate enough ev enough data working in that way to apprehend the evolution of entire societies in ways that are relevant for what we live through now. In many ways, I would say the collection of data through remote sensing and, you know, satellite imagery and space age types of technologies is of a scope and scale that is much more uh, in keeping with the ability of the archaeological record to contribute to uh, understanding of today. But there's a culture change involved there where funding agencies still imagine what they're doing as they're funding an excavation or they're funding an analysis of a museum collection or something like that. And Again, I'm not saying that those things don't contribute to the to the total cumulative accumulation of, of knowledge in the field. It just means it's a very slow process when it's done that way. And it takes much longer than one project to do it that way. So one angle on solving this problem involves new forms of data collection at, you know, again, using satellites and imagery. I mentioned LIDAR coverage, things like that. Another dimension of it is that because archaeologists have been collecting data for 100 years or more, there is a lot of information out there that's very distributed and non-standardized and it's, you know, distributed in tons of publications and, and reports and archives and things like that. And the process of integrating all that information into the kinds of databases that uh, we all know are so productive to work with today is a really uh, big challenge. And, and it takes person power. It takes a person to actually go to an archive and get a piece of paper and actually type in the numbers <laughs> in a record. You know, you can't just go to a website and download the data to work with. You have to create it working in this distributed way. So that's also expensive and it takes a long time. So that's another one of the challenges that, that we have. But I would say that the biggest challenge truly just has to do with archaeologists imagining what we can do with the information we can potentially control. Expanding our imagination regarding what we can do with it and the ways in which it can be helpful uh, to the present and the future. I think, again, you see it even in the way archaeologists write. I read so many books where, again, it, the goal is to understand and something that someone is looking at, this excavation, <laughs> this burial, this detail. And if the goal is to understand the details, you know, again, I mean, human societies in detail, of course, vary in all sorts of ways. You know, it's sort of like if you wanted to study the details in the configuration of organelles in a cell from moment to moment, it'd be much more productive to generalize about patterns in what the organelles do as single-celled organisms evolve or something like that than it would be to try and understand specific details of what happens inside a cell from moment to moment. 
you know, and I think that's true for societies too. I think the regularities that that are there at the level of human social behavior show up when you apprehend them at a at a big scale and where you don't need to sweat the details so much. At least that's, I mean, the archaeological record also, because only some things preserve and they don't preserve consistently. And what is preserved varies from place to place around the world. You know, the archaeological record shows you different things in different places, just depending on happenstance for what happens to preserve based on partly on the environment and partly on the behavior of people in the past and partly on uh, what's happened since those ruins were vacated and so on. All those things are there. And, and all of those things mean that an archaeology that contributes to the present and future really can't traffic in the details. You know, we need to step back to the big picture. Again, I would say a bird's eye view and a broad view, uh, an evolutionary level view of an entire societies to uh, make our contributions. So, you know, supporting research teams to work on those sorts of projects when they are so different from what archaeologists have traditionally done or what an archaeological project is con traditionally conceived of as being is a huge challenge that we have to overcome. Yeah, I think you know, anyone who has spent some time listening to this show or, or reading the corpus of complex systems research knows that there is a strong vein of functionalism in this discipline. And, you know, you're really speaking to that. I want to talk with you about the way that adopting this functionalist attitude, you know, or this lens has allowed you to do some of the more interesting work, and in, at least in my opinion, that, that you've done, which is, you know, work you've co-authored with people like uh, Jose Lobo and, and Luis Betancourt and others on urban scaling and on, you know, how it is that you apply this, this kind of thinking to looking at this, like you said, a, a rather heterogeneous set of different ancient settlements, urban and non-urban, over thousands of years across, you know, thousands of kilometers all over the world, and then derive from that a uniform understanding of how human societies grow and what changes as they grow. We'll link to all of these in the in the show notes. You've got, you know, papers at PLOS One, Journal of Archaeological Science, and others looking at settlements scaling and economic change everywhere from central Mexico to the, the Andes to the Roman Empire. And like you said, you, you know, you had it seems like you had to look less at the historically contingent and culturally specific ways that that these these cities utilize space and more at the functions that those different spaces and relationships between them enable different kinds of social activity. So this, you know, this is a, a powerful example of how this kind of thinking reveals these sort of universals among human societies across time and space. And I'd, I'd love to hear you kind of unpack how you and your co-authors formalized this kind of thinking in this work. Well, uh, I mean, it's uh, the way that we got to start collaborating is a fun story. Back when I was a, a postdoc at SFI, uh, of course, one of the things that was is wonderful to do there is to sit and have lunch and talk with whoever happens to be there and, and learn about what other people are doing and uh, hear about their questions and, you know, get involved in conversations about those things. So I used to, you know, when I was a postdoc, if you, you know, I would pretty regularly sit and have lunch with Louis Spettencourt and learn about the work that uh, he was doing with Jeffrey West and others on uh, urban scaling. And what struck me was 
the very beginnings of a, of a formal approach to thinking about these effects was beginning to take shape at that time. And I remember Jeffrey and Luis both talking about these ideas and explaining what they thought the fundamental social processes were that led to these effects that they were observing in contemporary cities. And so there were two elements of this. One was, as I learned about the kinds of data that uh, urban scientists were using working in the present, I thought, wow, they're thinking about societies like archaeologists do <laughs> in the sense that they're taking a big step back and thinking about them in very broad terms. And that's something that in the study of contemporary cities has only become feasible in the relatively recent past as the technologies for uh, observing contemporary urban life, you know, again, from altitude has, has come into being. So there was that dimension. And then there were the ideas about where, you know, the, the social processes that generated these scaling effects and where they came from, you know, what they were and what was going on with them. And I remember listening to Luis and Jeffrey talking about it. And what I realized is that they were not alluding to anything that was specifically contemporary or modern. They weren't alluding to capitalism. They weren't alluding to finance. They weren't alluding to democracy. They weren't alluding to markets even. They were alluding to something very, very simple and very, very general, which was the concentration of human interactions of all kinds in space, in physical space. And the constraints of physical space for human interaction, of course, uh, the fact that a person can only talk to so many other people at once, you know, uh, and so on. The fact that people have to eat in the end, <laughs> you know, we can't interact if we can't, you know, don't have uh, energy in our bodies to burn, to power our brains. Um, so when I he heard Luis and Jeffrey talking about these ideas, I thought, well, if you're right, and this is what's going on with contemporary patterns of urban scaling, then they should appear, should show up throughout the archaeological record too, because people in ancient societies did everything that they were talking about that people in cities today do. So I remember after one particular like uh, presentation that Jeffrey gave uh, at SFI, I, I remember that I had some settlement pattern data from ancient central Mexico on my computer that had been collected in the 1960s through uh, quote old fashioned survey archaeology where people actually had to walk around and directly measure the boundaries of, uh, of ancient settlements and things like that estimate the population based on the densities of trash that were laying around on the surfaces of these sites and so on. And so I, I found those data on my computer and I analyzed them the same way that I had seen uh, Luis and Jeffrey look at them uh, uh, with look at data for contemporary cities. And lo and behold, the same statistical patterns were there, you know, all the way down to the same parameters of the fit lines were there, <laughs> you know, and I have to admit, you know, I remember when I was first, where I was interviewing for a, an Amidiar fellowship, I remember uh, having an interview with Jeffrey, and it was the first time I'd heard him talk about the urban scaling work that the team at SFI had been doing. And because of my training as an anthropologist, my first reaction was to be more interested in why cities don't fall on the line <laughs> than the fact that the line was there. You know, I mean, I was just coming out of an anthropology graduate program where, you know, diversity is the point of everything that anthropologists do. And so, you know, that was my first reaction to it was like, well, understanding the residuals to the fit line is more interesting than the fit line. And it took me a while and it took me, a, you know, probably more of most of a year of listening to uh, Jeffrey and Luis and others talk about how astounding it was that the fit line was there. 
And it took, I, I would say I finally understood that when I analyzed the data that I had on my computer from central Mexico and got the same parameter value <laughs> for the fit line. Then I thought, oh, okay, this is cool. This is interesting. And uh, that started us off on this on this trajectory that's led to, you know, grant funding and, uh, and a website and conferences and lots of publications. And as you said, I hope uh, a, a good example of how the way of thinking represented by the Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis can work. I certainly hope that uh, this work will be perceived in that way by other archaeologists, at least, and, and hopefully other social scientists, too. So we've been we've been running with it, you know, ever since. And, and again, what's become, I think, apparent to all of us in ways that we didn't realize before is that is that the ideas embedded in the tradition of urban scaling research at SFI are really not even about cities. They're not about the present. They're not about cities. They're about human beings and what they do. And they're about human sociality in general. And as a result, I feel like we're actually working on a much more general theory of human sociality than I think any of us realized, uh, uh, what, back in 2013, I guess, when we first started talking. So I think it's incredibly exciting what we've been discovering together. And this is another way where what we're doing is, is a real culture change for an archaeologist. Not too long ago, I, I was watching a, a, oh, a YouTube video about some, uh, some physicists that uh, got really excited when there was a problem with the launch of a, a communication satellite that gave it an extremely elliptical orbit around the Earth. And of course, from the point of view of like a GPS satellite and, you know, the functionality of that, of that piece of equipment, it cost somebody a lot of money that the malfunction happened. But for these physicists, you know, there was like, wow, we have an opportunity to test elements of Einstein's theory of general relativity using this highly elliptical orbit. And something that the physicist said in the, in the video that, was, that really hit home with me was, what we most wanted to do is get a result we didn't expect. What we most wanted was to get a result that was inconsistent with general relativity because that would tell us that there was something more to learn and something more to do. That idea came from having a theory that was well enough developed, like general relativity, that when you do get an unexpected result, it is interesting and exciting because it, you know, it does lead you in a new direction, but that's partly because there's already reasonable support for general relativity. You know, it's been tested in many ways, and I, Einstein's ideas have been found to be you know, really good, really good at capturing reality. So. That really stuck with me, and, and it's been something that our group has been trying to do with, um, with studying scaling effects in the archaeological record, too, is to try and find cases where these relationships don't happen, and then to ask, well, why not? And see if that leads us to a deeper understanding of the process overall. And uh, there's a couple of papers that we have uh, in progress coming out soon that are gonna, starting to do that. Now that we've seen the regularity in enough cases and enough reason to have some faith in the in the theory that we're working with. Now we're at the stage where, wow, okay, now cases that don't work are actually more interesting. <laughs> uh, and again, you know, for for an archaeologist to have been involved in in finding a regularity that's strong enough that for most people in my field, the first time you would find a result that doesn't fit, you would just throw out everything and start over. You know, you'd be like, okay, fine, that was a dead end and you're done. In this case, it feels more like, no, we're not at a dead end. It's that we're actually probing the edges of what, how these processes work and how to better uh, conceive of them. 
uh, and to make to understand them better by seeing areas where 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 they where they break. The clearest example that we've been working with is a, a big database of information on the temporary campsites made by hunting and gathering peoples around the world. A researcher went like again combed through the ethnographic literature and compiled this huge database of the populations and areas of temporary hunter-gatherer camps from all over the world, you know, and um, when you look at, at the relationship between the number of people that camp together and the amount of space they take up, what shows up very clearly is that hunter and gatherers camp increasingly spread out the larger the camp gets. You know, the more people camp together, the more space they put between each other. And that's the exact opposite of what happens in cities all around the world, which is the more people live together, the closer they pack together. And so here's an example of something where, wow, okay, hunter-gatherers don't do what people do in cities. They're clearly doing something else. Why is that? What's missing? Is it something social, cultural? Is it energetic? Is it, you know, is it because they don't have reliable food supplies? Is it because they don't have the social institutions that allow strangers to interact in, in a kind of mutually beneficial way? What is it that they're missing? And in, in answering those questions, then you begin to learn more about the emergence and evolution of these social processes that characterize the world that we know today. And it suggests there was a time when they didn't exist. And then in a sense, it, it suggests that there's evolution here in human sociality, an evolutionary story to explain. Uh, so that's an example of, of an area that I think is super, super exciting, uh, where uh, we have some papers in progress right now. So, you know, to draw a link to the conversations that we had with Jeffrey West on this show back episodes 35 and 36 to talk about the the deviations from that fit. You know, I think maybe one of my favorite examples is the example he gives in, in scale about the human being itself and about when you look at the, you know, the metabolic rates of these different organisms that a modern technological human being is using more calories, you know, when you count our entire technological footprint you know, we're using something like 30 times as much energy as you would expect for another mammal of our body size. And so you have to think about the human being as deviating from this plot by regarding us as not being merely the mass of the the flesh delimited organism, but you have to include everything else that we have taken in. Again, you know, functionally, into the anatomical behavioral systems pattern of what it is that we are in this world now. And I think looking at that, one of the things that I love in particular about the paper that you lead authored for your work in the Central Andes is how this kind of thinking inverts the assumptions that we, you know, so many people are spouting this rhetoric and have been for, for centuries about the way that human culture, society, and, and technology are driving one another. That, for example, human lifespan and quality of life, the intricacy of society are, you know, are driven by technological innovation or driven by market activity. And in this particular study, one of the results is that this is precisely backwards. That again, you know, like with Jeffrey West talking about how the increased pace of life inside one of these social reactors that a city is, is the, actually the engine powering this accelerating crisis innovation cycle. 
And so I'd love to hear you get into a little bit of the details about how it's the connectivity of these social networks, not the expansion of long-range trade, not market development, not technological progress that is changing everything, including all of those things that we just mentioned and sort of like not the other way around. Like how how did you come to this? You know, what, is it, what does it look like? You're talking about the, the Inca expansion absorbing various other cultures like uh, Montaro and, and Wonka and how it changed their way of life. But again, not because they were suddenly, they suddenly received this like this boon of higher technology from the Inca, but that it was, it was changing the, the structure of the functional relationships within those societies. So yeah, could you go into a little bit more detail about that? Well, I mean, according to the theory that we're working with, there are scale-free effects of human agglomeration or, you know, the, the number of people being able to interact with each other in space that are open-ended, that they provide benefits as far as people can take them. But of course, all of humanity doesn't live in one city today. And the reason we can't, for lots of different reasons, you know, one is that you know, there'd be no way to get food to humanity if everyone lived in one city. You know, <laughs> there's also, of course, there are social divisions around the world today. There's conflict. Uh, you know, I mean, we're having enough troubles sticking together just as the United States right now. So, you know, not 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 to mention the conflicts and international relations that go on. So, you know, there's lots of other cultural, political, economic, energetic, technological barriers to the realization of that potential that we think is always there. And so all of these other things that go on in society, in a sense, they, they come together to set what that potential is. And what we find is that societies generally grow to take advantage of whatever, whatever levels of agglomeration they can handle based on this other, the rest of the milieu that they're operating in. And in general, you know, everywhere we've looked, the material standards of living of human beings improve as their levels of agglomeration grow. That's on average. Of course, there's lots of variation. Of course, it's, of course there's fluctuations in that. Of course, there are still injustices and experiences that many of us have of urban problems. These are statistical averages. They're not what must happen for every case at all times. They're the average outcome across many instances of what happens. So we think that those processes are always there. One way that this realization does bump up against some uh, traditional stories in archaeology has to do with the emergence of, of civilizations, of early civilizations. I would say that ever since uh, a very famous archaeologist named V. Gordon Child uh, wrote Man Makes Himself, uh, back in the mid 20th century. The dominant approach in archaeology concerning the emergence of civilization has been more or less that it involves a small group of wealthy and powerful people convincing the rest of society to support them and to labor longer and harder to pay their taxes to support people who were more or less parasites. <laughs> and, and basically because of power, and because of the ability of leaders to control violence and things like that, people more or less just had to play along. And what I would say is that that view presumes that there's no intrinsic benefit to figuring out how to live together in a city, and that the reason cities emerged is because leaders forced people to do it, <laughs> or because people had to do it to defend themselves from the enemies of the leader, you know, who responded by having their, so everyone has their own army, 
And so you live behind the walls in a city to protect yourself and you give taxes to the leaders who keep you safe. You know, that's sort of the way it's it has often evolved in archaeology. And and so what it suggests is that civilization is, in a sense, false consciousness in uh, Marxist terms, that the average person doesn't actually benefit from it and that people would have been better off if it had never happened in the first place. And it's a pretty utopian kind of Edenic view. Of course, if civilization had never happened, there would be orders of magnitude fewer human beings on the earth. That might be better for the earth, but there wouldn't be more people. So if your measure of success of humanity is how many people you can give life to, well, I hate to tell you, but civilization was a pretty good invention, <laughs> despite all the, all the problems that it has. Um, so I would say that the work that we're doing helps to, in a sense, balance out that narrative by describing some of the intrinsic benefits that flow from humans figuring out how to live together and develop economies where there's mutually beneficial exchanges between individuals, despite all of the power asymmetries and warfare and, uh, and injustices that come along with it. You know, what I would say is that the net benefits of all of that have to outweigh the net costs or else civilization wouldn't have emerged independently seven different places around the world within a few thousand years of people figuring out how to produce a reliable food supply and develop infrastructure that was fixed in place. Um, it happened everywhere. So are you saying that human beings everywhere somehow were subject to the same false consciousness everywhere? Well, I don't know. I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic than that view. But again, this is a big change for archaeology, who has tended to largely adopt a critical stance on power and inequality. And uh, this work suggests that, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that and that we need to think more about it. Yeah. So in the work that you did on Rome, I like when you're you're looking for how to how to think about these things, how to measure these things. You're looking at again to you know to think about this in terms of like you said the the aerial view of things and how again to compare this to Jeff West and Jim Brown, Brian Enquist, and the way that they link urban scaling to the metabolic scaling in organisms. You think about the the fora and the agori of the Roman Empire and the the streets and the lengths and the widths of the the street networks like transportation networks, like the circulatory system of an organism. And, you know, naturally to call again on Jeff West's episode and the conversation I had with Chris Kempis and with Melanie Moses on the show, there are physical limits to how big those networks can grow in an organism, you know, be it unicellular, multicellular, or, you know, a social superorganism like an ant colony. And so this gets into a tricky question that Jeff raises in his book and that we discussed in the conversation, which is, have we followed the benefits, the increasing returns to scale of these increasingly enormous agglomerations of human beings kind of off the cliff? Like, are we, when you look at uh, the way that human social organization has decoupled in, uh, you know, important ways from spatial organization, you know, like as of yesterday, the late cultural historian, William Irwin Thompson, a shout out to him and, you know, his his conversation on the evolution of human society from what he called sanguinal to geographic and now noetic polities, you know, that you look at the way that people think about Facebook as one of the world's largest nations now. And, you know, so this is a digital agora that is 
threatening in certain ways the fabric of the cohesion of human society because of its enormous scale. And I'm just curious, I mean, there are certainly there are things that could be said about the way that these systems depend upon an unjust simplification of the models of reality, you know, the externalization of certain ecological and economic costs. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know from you in thinking about all of this, you know, what do you make of the insights from settlement scaling theory to what is going on right now with this weird remix of, of spatial and non-spatial human interaction and what kind of insights this might shed on the future of human social organization and the sustainability of that organization? Yeah, those are deep and important questions. I have a few thoughts, although you know I'm sure others will have more. One thing that occurs to me is that actually a friend network on Facebook is much less diverse than the scope of direct and indirect interaction, physical interactions that a person has in the real physical city. So, you know, even from the point of view of like, if you're commuting on the highway, you've got a whole bunch of other people with many different perspectives, beliefs, you know, other things that are all following the same rules for the for the mutual benefit of everyone on the road. Or if you go to the grocery store, you know, the diversity of people in that store or the diversity of people that you interact with and in getting your food for the day is orders of magnitude more diverse, I would say, than the people you tend to be friends with on Facebook. So what I think is being revealed is that social media is actually serving to isolate us from from each other, actually, in an ironic way, relative to what actually has supported the development of society as we know it. So I am actually quite concerned about that. But, you know, at the same time, time, it's also super interesting. I mean, more and more of a person's physical needs can seem to be able to be met through the internet because of all of the people who are increasingly putting their efforts into, for example, fulfilling grocery orders for someone and then delivering them to their home so that you don't even have to go to the store. <laughs> to get the energy that you need. And you can get really good food that way. And you could, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, so the abstraction of the information dimension of society from its energetic and physical dimensions is a, it seems to me like it's really putting some stress on it. But at the same time, I also think that Life has changed in ways that I hadn't imagined when I was a kid. You know, I didn't imagine that we would have GPSs and that when you wanted to go, you know, wanted to go somewhere, you would just tell your phone where you wanted to go and it would speak to you and tell you what to do. And, and that we'd be able to have a video conference, you know, and teach classes through the computer without ever leaving our home. And all these amazing things have happened that I think if you just go from the beginning point and the end point, you say, how in the world did this occur? But yet if you live it step to step, it's at every step of the way, people are responding to the problems right in front of them and exploring the space that we inhabit and figuring out how to move the boundaries in different ways. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that the fact that many of us are noticing these kinds of stresses that come from the way social media abstracts our information, the information dimension from the rest, I suspect we'll, society will try to respond to it and that uh, the future will be different <laughs> than what we are living in right now. I think that will continue. One question that I think is super interesting to think about that we deal with a lot thinking about the archaeological record is that there are many ancient city cities of the ancient world. They started small, they grew to a certain point, they got big, and then they plateaued 
And they more or less stayed like that for centuries often. One possible interpretation of that, again, given that there would have been increasing returns for them to continue getting bigger, is that the energetic milieu of that society or the social milieu didn't allow it to get any bigger. There was some other constraint that kept it there. A fascinating question is whether, whether the world we live in today is bumping up against constraints or not. Unfortunately, I think it's hard to know ahead of time. I think you can only know it in retrospect, although you know, I welcome some ideas to, about how you could know it ahead of time. I do think that most ancient societies did bump up against what was feasible, and then they just sort of hung out there at the limits much more frequently than in our experience. It's a huge question for sustainability, of course, whether, whether we're already operating near the edges of what we can do. I would say that because our technology is changing so fast, we're probably, I suspect, we're actually not at the limits yet. The question will be whether we can continue to evolve in ways that don't destroy the earth in the process uh, of us continuing to explore what we can do as a society. So to speak to that, and I know that you've got to go here soon, but I think if I can squeeze in a, a quickie bonus round. One of the things that you brought up a couple times in this, you know, the overarching theme of, uh, you know, adopting a uniformitarian lens to view the ancient world, the current world, and, you know, potentially the future world speaks to the erosion of, as I think you said earlier, this idea that the world that we're looking at is somehow encapsulated in the past, that, you know, that archaeology is very much a discipline of the way that people are across time and space studying the Maya. It's not like the Maya disappeared. Their social organization changed, but they're still there. They're still speaking the language. Well, but, who, but who's the they, right? I mean, what do you mean by that? Right. But you co-authored this opinion piece in PNAS on understanding migrations and looking at the past of human migration and how it, you know, what kind of light it might shed on climate migration, the kind of challenges that we discussed with Martin Sheffer and Tim Kohler back in episode 33. And you say in here, this is really key. I really like this. You said, for archaeologists to be successful in this, they must not only listen to affected communities, but bring them into our research. Traditional knowledge experts and elders must not be subjects to be interviewed, but instead collaborators in identifying the problems to be studied and how to study them. So this really, you know, this speaks again to a, a way that this discipline and anthropology and other disciplines have changed their thinking over the last century, you know, that it's no longer this sort of elite imperialist colonizer type of perspective on the communities and the societies that you're you're learning from, but like weaving them into the process. And I, I don't know, just as a, as a parting thought, I'd love to hear you talk about in practice what this actually means for the way that archaeology is performed today and, you know, how it, how it might change the way that we, we practice it in the years to come. So, I mean, archaeology has traditionally focused on geographical diversity, of course, in addition to um, evolution over time. And there's tremendous geographical diversity still today in human culture uh, and society. And so integrating what archaeologists learn about the histories of peoples and cultures in different parts of the world with the frame of mind of the inheritors of those traditions and the types of knowledge that those communities have accumulated through the history that you learn about through archaeology is, I think, an important way of, again, perhaps unifying the heritage and imagination aspect of archaeology with the science of it. 
So one example that I can think of is much of my direct archaeological field work takes place in northern New Mexico, and I and I work in close partnership with people in uh, the Pueblo communities of New Mexico in my work. And in those communities, there's a sense that the human community has a responsibility to the stewardship of nature and that there is a moral obligation to it and that it leads in all sorts of cool and interesting and different directions than the Western thought tradition does with regard to the ways in which human beings treat each other and the ways in which they operate on a landscape. Well, Pueblo ancestors have bequeathed to the present and the future an amazing archaeological record of the experiences of people that have, have lived with those philosophies. They've still grown and changed and evolved and had their struggles and successes, all the kinds of things we're familiar with. And yet there also were some interesting kind of fundamental philosophical differences between the Native American way of thinking about the nature of reality and about the relationship between humans and the world the idea that humans are a part of the world, a part of the ecosystem, as opposed to something separate from it. Wilderness makes no sense to a Native American. There's no such thing. <laughs> you know, humans are in the wilderness all the time, if you're a Native American, right? So the idea that, that archaeologists can learn about the long-term consequences of, of values as they play out in the big picture, I think, is a, is a very exciting and interesting direction to move. And I think it also asks all of us to be a bit more humble uh, about the things that we believe we know and to say that, well, you know, there may well be reasons why uh, societies that think in the ways that uh, Western society does have grown and achieved this sort of cultural hegemony uh, over, the, over the earth. I mean, certainly modern science is an outgrowth of the Western way of thinking. And I would say, you know, there is such a thing as native science, but it's very different. Uh, than Western science. And objectively, of course, you know, its accomplishments are, are different. They're not as ex extensive by certain ways of thinking about it as Western science would be. On the other hand, if human communities have been able to persist at high densities with limited technology and maintain an environment, uh, maintain ecosystem functions, you know, beyond the, the human community, in ways that are natural or that emanate naturally from the philosophy of the people. I think applying the tools of Western science to those sorts of things to help us understand them better and help us to incorporate them better into our own future, I think is a, would be a, a good thing to do. It seems to me like all of us would benefit from a bit broader understanding of these issues. So yeah, I think it's an exciting area. And uh, I think that's one of the key reasons why traditional knowledge keepers in different communities around the world are an important ingredient of the kind of collaborative synthesis work that uh, we've been talking about. Awesome. That's a real potent place to end it. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.